Welcome to the Generous Business Owner Podcast, where business owners gain inspiration and encouragement to live a legacy, not just leave one. And now your hosts, Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Welcome, everybody, to the Generous Business Owner Podcast. My name is Jeff Thomas, one of the co-hosts, and we have a very special treat for you today. We have Dave Tolmey, who is a senior partner with the Edgewater Funds, which is a private equity fund based in Chicago, Illinois. However, he's coming uh, uh, to us from Florida, as most people in Chicago should be doing, escaping the winter to some extent in Chicago. Dave, thanks for being with us today. Yeah, thanks. I call this the winter survival plan. If you live in Chicago, you got to find a way out in winter. So, man, exactly that. And before the call, I was explaining to Dave that I, I'm trying to find a, pl- a way to escape the Houston summers, but so far I've failed. Uh, so anyway, I'll be taking notes uh, from Dave. <laughs> but Dave, we always get started. Now, you and I have, have talked before, but for everybody listening, we usually try to start with just kind of where you grew up, what 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 your family was like, that kind of stuff. Tell us about yeah. that. Yeah, Jeff, uh, thanks a lot. Really glad to have the opportunity today. I, I, I don't know if this will be a special treat to listen to me today, but uh, I'll try to keep it interesting. Uh, so uh, I grew up in a very high loving, highly functional family, no dysfunction. I'm the oldest of, uh, of three sons, born in the Chicago area, but grew up mostly in Virginia. And my parents were both passed away within the last two and a half, three years, were, you know, about Christians, loving people, service-minded, which is uh, a seed planted in me way back from the beginning. And we grew up in a you know, somewhat upper middle class, but hardly an affluent family, and uh, went to public school all the way through, including public college, University of Virginia, which I was fortunate enough to get in as an in-state student, and had, had a good time in high school, had a great time in college. And like a lot of your listeners... I learned something in college, including how to have a really good time. So that was those were the early days. And uh, my brothers and I, just two years apart each, and uh, still very, very close to this day. So it, some people kind of are products of challenged or troubled backgrounds or dysfunctional families. I'm the beneficiary of a highly functional and loving family, which in my mind has me born on third base. Well, that may be true, but we don't get to pick that route, right? That's, no, no. That, those are just the cards you're dealt. You were dealt some pretty good ones to start out, but yeah. that's certainly not the end of the story. And I know no one's story is up and to the right and yours is no exception, but, but it, you know, and I don't think we've talked about this before the, you know, you kind of took a, kind of a blue chip route, UVA and then graduate school and this sort of thing and got like the corporate job. Like, was there any kind of entrepreneurial thing happening for you young or, or in your family that you saw, or was that kind of a new path for you? That was a new path for me. My dad was a lawyer, corporate lawyer, okay. and uh, he really always wanted me to go to law school. And it was because the, a career in law provided him with great security, financial security, security for the family. And he wanted that more than anything for me. And so- after I uh, graduated from, from UVA, and I you know, graduated with honors and had lots of good stuff there, this, I was going to go to law school, but decided not to. I worked for a year, and he referred to it as dropping out of school because he was just didn't so go direct. He, you didn't he, do he, seven he, years in a row like he, had, he in his brain probably had prescribed. That, that was, to him, the surest way for me to actually get that graduate degree. Well, I ended up um, 
working for a bank for your Wachovia bank down in North Carolina, which was a $4 billion asset bank at the time, and uh, took the GMATs and did real well. And a good friend of mine from college, Terry Brothers, said, hey, Dave, you to apply to Harvard. I'm like, Harvard? Never thought about it, but ended up getting into Harvard Business School and going to Harvard um, after just one year of work experience and graduated in 1980. I was single. And uh, to this day, probably some of the closest friends in the world are my other good, good friends from business school. And that was a great experience for me because it really took me out of much more provincial thinking as it relates to being being a you know attorney guy from the University of Virginia. And uh, fourth of our student body was was international. I was younger than most, but ended up being elected the president of the business school, which kind of woke me up a little bit to think more broadly and didn't know what I wanted to do when I went to business school as opposed to most who had three, four, five, six years of work experience, kind of knew what they wanted to do. And we had a case in business school about a, a brand manager of Procter & Gamble. I said, that could be me. So I ended up getting a job offer of Procter & Gamble, but took a similar job with General Mills where I started my career in, in product management. As I look back on it, that may have been the desire to learn to run a business, run a brand, run a product. And so I guess that was always in there, but I didn't really articulate it that way because there really wasn't an entrepreneurship in my family. And I met my wife at General Mills, who was doing the same thing I was a couple of years behind me. So there was, and there was, there was a great fortuitous move, not to go to Proper Gamble in Cincinnati, but that kind of launched me in, into business. And I was, after four years at uh, General Mills, McKinsey was recruiting people who've been in the industry for four years or so and their experienced hires program. And so I ended up going to McKinsey because I felt like a general knows I was so insulated. You needed to know something. Yeah. And uh, plus, Minneapolis was not where my roots were. And so my wife and I moved to New York and I worked for McKinsey. But that, and I learned a lot there. That was a great experience for a couple of years, but I knew I'd, that wasn't for me. And that's where I really jumped off of what would be kind of a, a, a blue chip, as you called it, career path, and took a flyer with a company in the health club industry based in Baltimore, Maryland. When I was in business school, I ran the Boston Marathon. This was in the days where you could run it if you could put on a pair of tennis shoes. You didn't have to qualify. And and I was always walking around in sweaty gym clothes. And one of my classmates said, I just heard about this job with this little company in the health club business. They're looking for somebody to come learn the business and presumably run the company after the founder retired. So I took a real flyer and took that job. And it was, um, it was culture shock. But I got thrown out. Into, and that was my first time thrown out into the real world. It was a terrific experience. You know, I just had this image, Dave, of trading in the wingtips for the tennis shoes at the uh, fitness club. Like, I'm sure that's not what, you know, you were the office probably, but, you know, there's sort of an image there of, yeah, the, yeah, okay, we're doing, uh, like the lawyer dad actually helps a lot, right? Because when you have like a professional parent like that with a graduate, like a yeah. It makes sense. Like, I'm sure like having good grades was important and all of those kind of things and yeah. education, UVA, I'm sure they're proud of you getting in there. Harvard, oh my gosh, this is great. Even after the one year <laughs> off, even though you're working at that, that right. hilarious to me, but that shows the, the worldview. Okay. Harvard Business School, this is looking good. General Mills, I can see it. McKenzie's even more logical. Now we're kind of like, now you got to sort of keep up with you know, what's expected from a graduate of these schools, right, is even though it's not realistic, it's very little failure. 
all you do, every step you take is a rung up the ladder, but that's not actually what happened at the, at the healthcare company. So maybe you can take us through that. Yeah, story. yeah I will a little bit because when I went to this company, it's about 25 million in revenues when I went there and I told my, my friends and colleagues at McKinsey what I was doing, you know, I think a number of them reacted, have you lost your mind? Right. And they also said, I wish I had the balls to do that. Right. So it was a little bit of both and. And in Baltimore, most of my friends were working at Alex Brown, which is where Baltimore's based, you know, investment banking, those kinds of jobs. And so I was just doing something totally different. And uh, when I first got there, the, the owner and CEO of the company wanted me to learn the business from the ground up. So every Wednesday, to Monday and Wednesday at five o'clock, I'd leave the office and drive to one of the nearby clubs. I'd put on the, the, the employees. Oh, you really did get to wear the tennis shoes at work. Well, and I sold membership. Oh, it was awesome. It's a retail sales business. The way we ran it, it's a retail sales business. Not, you know, the product is the health club and personal training and this and that, but it's a retail sales business. And so I really got thrown into that and I learned a lot. And, you know, I wasn't really thinking about where does this lead other than this is good and what would it lead to next other than I hope that I could learn to run the business. But that company then eventually, the owner ended up selling out to Bally. And uh, Bally, which was growing by acquiring health club chains all over the country, acquired, acquired our company, U.S. Health. And the owner of the company quickly departed with $100 million in his pocket. And I was kind of this strange guy within the Bally culture, which was I, I, I didn't grow up in the industry. And uh, it was viewed with some skepticism, but eventually a guy that I had worked for within Valley became, became president. And it was a bit of a, of a culture clash between the old school and the new school. And uh, here I am living in Baltimore and it's like, what are we going to do? And so he said, Dave, could you move to Chicago where Valley is based? And if things work out, I will, you could be head of operations. So I thought, well, that sounds like a pretty good job in a five, six hundred million revenue business. So we picked up, moved to Chicago. I got there and it was a disaster. All these acquisitions have been made with uh, junk bond debt back in the days of Lambert, 14% interest. Oh, right. And the the what had been kind of a non-competitive industry with Valley is the one big national player. All these smaller clubs that were really a much better service, entrepreneurially run. Uh, and but just a better place to be a member. And so we had to generate cash every quarter to make an interest payment. And so I'm looking at this going, and I did get to be head of operations. And with 330 health clubs at the time, and a lot of people who were brought up in a culture of anything goes to sell a membership, and I mean anything, it just didn't cut it. And so I'm flying around the country, meeting with the district managers, regional managers, and they kind of salute the flag. I turn around and I'm sure they kind of laugh their heads off that here's this young guy trying to tell them what to do. But I could see financially that this was not going to work. And a friend of mine from college who had a small private equity fund said, hey, hey, we ought to try to do a buyout of Bally. <laughs> How do we do that? Well, <laughs> so he said, Let's try to do a prepackaged bankruptcy. There's all this debt. There's all these expensive leases. We could renegotiate the leases, cram down on debt. And uh, we spent a year putting the plan together. I put the operating plan together. He put the financial plan together. We got 
in front of a, a guy named Arthur Goldberg, who had back in the days of Greenmail, he got in control of the company and made a pitch to buy out the company. He had a warrant to buy 25% of the business. He had been wiped out. So he's like, forget it. I'm not doing that. And I'm like, whoops. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, the biggest shareholder. My private equity, my private equity buddy got to fly home <laughs> to Richmond, Virginia, and I'm there going, man, I've just bet my career. Right. Such as it was, a guy in the yeah, alcohol yeah. business, if you call that a career. I mean, I was out, out there in the wilderness, and he quickly, this chairman, Arthur Goldberg, fired my boss, Mike Lucci, who was a former all-pro football player and didn't really need the job. He's about 15 years older than me. And they were nice enough not to fire me the next day. But I'm like, oh, man, I am cooked. We moved to Chicago, you know, not that many years ago. I built a house, three kids in elementary school, big mortgage. Now what am I going to do? It was not comfortable. Pretty much the worst nightmare. This is why your buddies from business school had said, I mean, nobody could predict exactly that set of facts, perhaps. But when you get involved in a smaller company, sell the big one, okay, oh. you've got an okay job, but it's, you know, uh, it's not the clean, it's, it's not the good case study. Let's put it that way. Right, right, right. <laughs> well, I guess right. most of the case studies, there's usually a problem. But anyway, you're, you're living this case study that's an issue. You think you have a solve to come to the, you know, this is going to be the good ending to the case study. And suddenly it, beca- it falls over. Hey, I'm just imagining you're like, oh, gosh. In a, oh, it was uh, very stressful. You know, now we'll get to this, but now after I've been in private equity 22 years, I know how it works, but I had no idea how back then. Right. And, and I was well-intentioned. I wanted to fix the company. Yeah, no, exactly. And it, wasn't, it wasn't about the money. It was about fixing the company. And it led to a, you know, this sense of, I call it the curse of the Harvard Business School. Yeah, I'm, like supposed to, I'm supposed to succeed. Right. And success, you know, I had kind of determined that success could be defined in a lot, financial and career success could be defined in a lot of ways. But now I'm at, I'm at, I wasn't out of work, but I felt like I was going to be soon, an out of work health club guy. Right. Put that on your resume and see what it takes. You know what I'm saying? So it was a panic time. It was a dark time for me, you know, and, mm. you know, without getting too deep too early here. You know, it's one of those things that going through it scared the hell out of me. And my wife was always there for me. She's always believed in me. And my kids were too young to know anything other than just, you know, dad seems a little distracted. But, you know, looking back again, what I know now, but didn't know then, you know, I thank God for having been through that because now my perspective on things that aren't going well for me or for others helps me to understand a couple of things for myself. One of my favorite old expressions is, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Yeah. And, you know, I thought that might kill me for, you know, not literally, but professionally. I'm still here, and then, you know. And, put, and it sounds to me, I mean, look, you don't go through that background and the schooling and a little pressure from mom and dad, not that they were trying to do that, you know, they're trying to help you, of course. Yep, yep. But they had this sort of path mapped out. You're trying to kind of honor that to your, in your way of doing it. The word that keeps coming to my mind is identity. How did, this, one. How did that affect? Did you yeah. have to work through, like, wait, 
what does my self talk about who I am? You know, I think, you know, I'm going to be a lot more superficial than that right now. I really, you know, my dad was always fixated on financial security. He didn't talk about it much, but it was just having that good constant job to provide for the family. And I was more concerned about financial security for my family. That was the biggest thing, security. And the security also required having a husband and a dad who had his head on straight. And so it's both of those things seemed at risk at the time. And so that was a low point. I got rescued. And uh, the rescue, (laughs) you know, I'd like to say it was the answer to my prayers, but it was uh, a friend of mine from business school who knew about it, this entrepreneur who had a big little little venture fund, was looking to make acquisitions in the uh, day spa industry. And he said, why don't you join that? Why don't you hook up with this guy? Why don't you meet him and see if you could help him figure that out? So I did. Here, now now a health club guy out of work from Harvard Business School actually could, that's the one thing maybe I could have done is help him evaluate the day spa industry. And I ended up um, staying with that little venture fund, but but they were based mostly in California. I rented one of those little Regis offices in Chicago. Again, I'm going to that. You know, I was like, oh, <laughs> what if I do it? Oh, exactly. You took the words out. What am I doing? (laughs) In that process, I came across this little company outside in about 20 minutes from my house that was doing mark early, early. This is 1997, 98. Yeah. Doing doing market, internet marketing, website development. Pretty um, early days. Really early days. Newsletter, online newsletter. Yes. Permission, email, marketing, this and that. Four guys, probably none of them 30 years old yet. And, you know, I barely know how to use email. But these guys were doing this. And I came across them and they were actually looking to raise money. And so I give credit to one of the uh, venture partners at this fund who was out in in Silicon Valley. And he came out and met with me, with them. And we identified an opportunity to capitalize on their very nascent email marketing business. So I left the venture firm, went to be CEO of that little company called WebPromote. And it was a time which where companies could quickly uh, aggregate eyeballs, generate some revenue, and it was a race to go public. This we we basically adopted a strategy where we would be the first company to aggregate websites that would generate revenue by sending emails. Websites were generating revenue by running banner ads on their site. That was the first generation, and DoubleClick became the company that managed that process. So we, I could see after somebody told me how to think about this, we could see that there was the next generation of marketing, which was direct mail, that emails could be sent to registered users who visited the website. And quickly, I hired a whole new team of executives. Everybody wanted to be in the internet. Everybody wanted to be a dot-com. And back to, I had a lot of friends who had traditional jobs, who they could have gone home and slept well at night. And once again, they're like, I can't believe you're doing this, and I wish I had a lot, a lot of guys. So it wasn't, wasn't necessarily always by choice that I ended up in these situations, but it was absolutely, I thought, hey, I'm coming out of Bali, I'm a work health club guy, I'd better make this work. So we renamed the company YesMail, YesMail.com back in the day. Great people working for me, we worked as a team, we quickly built a, a sales force of 65 people, aggregated 215 internet partners with 25 million email addresses and the analysts started to follow us and uh, we were the first to go public in September of 1999. I mean, it was quick, but it was so hot and topical at the time that it was 
A, possible to do, and B, you know, gave me enough superficial notoriety and that it was like, wow, Dave, you are a success. And to be perfectly honest, that, I don't think my head got too huge, but that, that stopped the bleeding. That stopped the emotional bleeding. And then the financial success that came with it, which at the peak of the market was, uh, was goofy money. But, you know, even when I got out, as the NASDAQ was declining substantially, we sold the CMGI and closed in March of 2000. The NASDAQ really started to slide after that. But my family was financially secure after And boy, did that put me on a totally new path. And so I went from low, low, low to high, high, high and did it in a way that was just positive for everybody involved. And I'm proud of that. Yeah. And, I'm, and I really felt like I was rescued. You know, the, the verse that came to mind as you were saying that was Proverbs 16, 9, man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So, oh, well. I mean, there's no way uh, your parents or you would have ever mapped out that, even that part of the career. No. And, you know, I was in this uh, Wall Street business uh, in that, in the late 90s. And if people listening to this, you know, weren't out of school and working at that time, this sounds probably, well, didn't everybody who got into some dot-com in the late 90s have that success? I'll say this. It was a moonshot for the NASDAQ, but I remember everybody, as you were sort of cashing out, I remember everybody was jumping in. Yeah. So I think I'm probably being generous when I tell a person listening on the treadmill that wasn't, you know, in the workforce back then, that less than 20% got out with their skin intact. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yes, I do. And I was 40, 43 years old. So I had a perspective that a lot of 28 year olds didn't. And I knew, I knew that the valuations of companies. This thing was coming down on the other end. It was goofy money. It made no sense. And so I knew let's get ahead of the rest. Let's go public. Let's get sold and let's get out. And that was the game plan. That was the strategy. And, uh, and we executed the strategy. And so. You know, I really, it, you know, one of them got, got all these great, whether it's a biblical verse or an expression, but, you know, from those two, much has been given, much is expected. And yeah. if there was any single instance of being given something, that is the example. This is unjust enrichment for me, no doubt. And so, so that was great. And so, um, yeah. So where does it go of, next? Where does it go next? I know you ended up in the private equity. Business. So I had a lot of options. I had a lot of options after that. At yeah. job alternatives. And, and uh, so a number of private equity firms approached me. They were still interested in, in, in uh, technology companies, marketing-driven businesses. And a good friend of mine had kept in touch with who's the founder of, of Edgewater, a guy named Jim Gordon. And my friend ran a company, UBID, took it public, sold it around the same time in Chicago. So we both connected with Jim Gordon. And, and we, our thesis was, if you've got operating people who have a fund that that might be an interesting way to go about doing it. So we, we, Jim had a track record, but we started with fund one and now we got a little over 3 billion in assets under management. And that was 22 years ago. You know, again, I thought this was going to be kind of a hobby, you know, let's go buy some companies. It, I mean, it's a, it is a sophisticated, competitive, hard business, but boy, is it, I mean, compared to being a CEO of a company where you've got a portfolio of companies, 
and you have the liberty of finding really good people to work with, I mean, it's a gift. Uh, the, any, everybody in this industry in private equity thinks that they've got it tough. Go find a real job and you'll see, what a, <laughs> you'll see what a gift your career is. And everybody who's joined us since then, we got about 25 people, have all been in investment banking, but we are the three founders have all been operators first. And, and, and we've been, and we've been pretty darn successful and uh, we've done it the right way. So, and there's interesting people, good people, interesting industries. We don't have a specific niche because it's really the operators, the CEOs, the companies that better know what's going on. And that's really, you know, the last 22 years have been that. And it's just been a great experience with some stressful times you know, back to that a little bit, you know, it kind of slipped back into the darkness a little bit, not much. None of it was risking financial security yeah. or risking never having rung the bell at, from a career standpoint. And so it's been another blessing to be honest. So, so I like that verse you, you, you know, or the, or the saying, you know, to whom much is given, much is expected. And you know, your parents, you know, had a good education, such a kind of on this path, you, you had your struggle and come back. And along the way, though, maybe we get into the, the, the sort of charitable yeah. undertones that you've had from your family and that you've continued. This to me is a really interesting story. So, and what, what I love about your story and frankly everyone's we tell is they're all different everybody's got a different story so your professional career is super unique but you've got a lot of partners and it's management of larger organizations and and, and this sort of thing so some people use their business platform some people have a different platform yeah. and so do you want to talk about what that sort of giving platform is sure, sure. Like for you well jeff I, I admire the way you built uh, your firm around a set of Christian values, but you know, our firm, you know, we're, we like to think we're high integrity and ethical, but it's not a faith-based organization right. at all. And so it, throughout my adult life, I've been involved in church. I've been involved in on uh, civic activities. I've been involved in nonprofit activities. And I, and I've been able to expand that over time as my capabilities and as my resources and as my time has expanded too. And again, that definitely goes back to my parents. It's just, it's just, you know, it's gone from the way I wired and what is expected to really over the last, I don't know, five to seven to 10 years, a direct calling. I mean, God is, God is talking to me hmm. saying, Hey, or I'm saying to God, you, you've been, you've given me this. I've got 67 years old. I've got great health, lots of energy, Still work a little bit. I'm very part time at Edgewater, and we're well on the way with with other with projects that I'll talk about in a minute. But it's like, you know, I feel sometimes a bit obsessed, which is okay. Uh, but God, what do you want me to do? What are you calling me to do in this world to do your work? You know, for your glory, but even more directly for the benefit of the people who are being who are benefiting from it, and. A great example of it that, that takes a greater amount of my time now than ever is a school in Tanzania that my parents at age 70 visiting Tanzania with a group from the Lutheran Church. They were asked by their hosts, this was 22 years ago, would you help us start a school for physically disabled children because we don't have one and we need one? And my mother's mother taught what was called in the day the crippled children's class. 
in the 1940s and 50s in Rock Island, Illinois. And my mom was so attuned to that. My dad, who had retired five or six years before that, was like, yes, let's see if we can't find a way to make that happen. So our family, my brothers and I and my parents, we all committed ourselves to doing it. And it's grown incredibly. And for that next 20 years or so, until my parents were in their late 80s, they traveled there two, three, sometimes four times a year to Tanzania. They are beloved over there. And about 10 years ago, said, let's form a foundation. I'm the chairman of the foundation. And my and we have about 200 donors, most of whom are friends and business colleagues who are looking to find a way to do something to help others to, uh, and they know the money's going to be trusted. I mean, I was on the phone this morning with the school and we, we control the money. There's a hundred kids at the school at a time. They're all Tanzanian. They live within a hundred mile radius. Some, some between, you know, medium and very severe physical disabilities. Some of these kids are literally lying on a dirt floor and that's what they do at home. Uh, some are loved by their family. Some are ostracized and they find their way to the Faraja school. It's called, everybody wants to see it's the Faraja school website, www.farajasool.org. Faraja notes. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. And you know, it's, I never twist anybody's arm to donate. We raise about $300,000 a year. And it is one of those things that is like, it passes uh, one of my tests. I may mention this to you, my but for test in yeah. terms of allocation. Explain what that time. means. That's not a yeah. donor for the- Yeah, my time and money is like, you know, but for my involvement, yes. would this have happened anyway? And I, nothing is completely due to my efforts, but where where I am making a real difference, that's a place that I say, I want to go all in. And we're definitely all in at Faraja. And, and I love doing it. I'm, I'm going in another four weeks from today, I'll be there. And, uh, and I'm going with my brother, John, and I'm going with the vice chair of the board, David Vermillion, who was the CEO of Keebler. He was born with a club foot. He's one of my best friends. I mean, we are just so friggin' passionate about this. And it's, uh, and it, and it's great. And we can see what's happening. And, Back here in the U.S., it has, it's a story that people get. You're helping children with disabilities in Tanzania, in Africa. You know, what could be an easier story to tell? And um, it, it, because of that, it's kind of lit a fire in an awful lot of people here just to sponsor a specific child. They get letters back from the child. Their kids start to get awakened to the idea that life's just not about themselves. And so it's, it's kind of got a mission impact, certainly in Tanzania, but also here in the U.S. And we ch- challenged ourselves, the board challenged ourselves a couple of years ago. Okay, it's been going on 20 years. What do we do for the next 20 years? And it's not ridiculous to think about the next 20. I'm 67. My parents were 70 when they started this thing. You're way ahead. I got a, I got a long runway. Exactly. And so we started a, a, an additional program called Faraja Forward. Where in Tanzania, with many of the same relationships, we're partnering with other Tanzanian nonprofits to find ways to serve children with disabilities who are just so poor and so remote, they get nothing. And uh, so our mission is to move serving hundreds of children to serving thousands by partnering with a few dozen NGOs in Tanzania who are specialists at one thing, but you know, children need a broad range of services and, and we can we're working on that now. We've already made grants to uh, to six agencies, and we're going to keep doing this. And that's one of the main reasons 
I'm going over there in March to continue that work. So that's a big thing. Yeah, your, your your passion for that project comes through loud and clear. And what I'm sitting here picturing is maybe somebody who's uh, ten years behind you, or, or or heck, heck, maybe five years behind you, and uh, they've had maybe no two stories are the same, but maybe they've had their downturn. They're kind of coming out of it. They're kind of thinking about what's next, and. Uh, Let's tap your inner McKinsey consulting <laughs> brain for a moment. Like any good consultant, or probably you've you've probably drawn these little graphs for uh, various companies that you've uh, been on the board of on the private equity world. But you ran me through a little X Y axis that might be yeah. helpful for somebody kind of trying to figure out now where do I, where am I in my career, and uh, maybe I, I feel like I need some more fulfillment. How might I? Uh, how, how might you help them with that? Yeah, thanks for asking about that. So this actually, this concept, I, I was, my daughter went to University of Virginia, as did I, and so I went back and got got involved in their social entrepreneurship program, and I gave a talk to most of them are undergraduates, some graduate students, and I had some students say to me, you know, I'm going to work on Wall Street for two years, and then I'm going to join the Peace Corps. It's kind of like. How do I get involved in something? You don't have to give it all up to do it. And this little graph I described to you is a mix of time allocation between yourself or your family and, and all others. And so along the, uh, along the y-axis, you've got me at the top and others at the bottom. Yeah. And so and as you age over time, the curve is going to go up and to the right mean in the beginning. Your time allocation and resource allocation, others may be very low. Right. Because it's all about me and building for my family. And th- there's nothing wrong. That can't be like me is bad, others is good. But over time, as you get older, if there's a greater mix of others, then there's going to be less of me involved in that. Yeah. And that is, as we described, it, it, does, it can go up and to the right. But... Uh, as you give to others, and it's less about me, there is something that's so fulfill- inherently fulfilling about that, I believe, regardless of your motivation, that it is, it is a lesson in how to find passion and fulfillment mm. in life. And the story of my talk that I've given at UVA and a few other schools is making an impact. And I talk about ways to make an impact in ways that I've a few clips from Opportunity International and Farage School and a few other things. Uh, but it, it, it's a little bit of, you have to be thinking about what can I do for others? And it's not just writing a check. So that, that's not unimportant. But I think for anybody in their career who says, gee, I'm looking for something to feel passionate about. Yeah. Again, another gift in my life is Farage School. My dad, before he passed away, said, Hey, Dave, I'm, I, I don't mean to burden you with this. Are you kidding me? You've given me a gift. We're already up, running, successful. And I have friends who say, I wish I had my Farage. I wish I had something I felt really yeah. doing good. So I've got the benefit of that. There are so many other things that I've done or that others can do to get themselves engaged. Start small. and You don't have to start big. You don't have to wait to find something that you could be spending 40 hours a week doing good for others. 
start small and even spend a little bit of time and money, whether it's serving on a board, whether it's volunteering, getting involved in school. Um, it can be something that helps your community. It doesn't certainly does have to be international, but the way you can start and get engaged and you can feel the benefits of giving to others so that it's not just something you should do, but it's something that you get a reward from as you move along. And I think that, you know, gravity is going to work in reverse and you're going to move up that curve, less of me and more of others over time. And as I've got more time and resources and wisdom and skills, you know, we build, we build some wisdom over time uh, and ability of how to make an impact and to do it right and work with others. Uh, it becomes a pretty good way to spend, you know, to borrow Bob Buescher's second half to, to, to build that second half. Uh, or somebody said, yeah, we're in the fourth quarter now. I, I don't like to think about being in the fourth <laughs> quarter. I'm still, I'm still second halfing. Yeah, but, there you uh, go. And, yeah, right, exactly. But that's that little graph and kind of time allocation and just kind of how to, how to think about navigating the pathway of life. Well, I, I love that, and I think the uh, I'm back to a, a, a question you suggested everybody ask themselves, or at least that you asked yourself earlier in your career is, what are you calling me to do? Kind of asking God, what are you calling me to do? And when I, as I wrote that down, as you were saying it, you know, I circled you. To ask that question, a couple things need to be true. You have to believe there is a God that, to ask that question of, okay? Mm -hmm and have a stewardship mentality of I'm to serve uh, you. So you either implied in that is that there is a God and that you've given me something. How do you want that something you've given me used for your glory? You mentioned. And then I like this also about even in a secular context, by definition, your graph says that passion and fulfillment come from serving others. Right. And right. sort of, in, in kind of a recognition on the next axis, it being time, that over time we tend to find that to be true, you know? So the sooner you can kind of get that worldview put together where you recognize you're a steward, not an owner, and that fulfillment comes from serving other people, mm -hmm. the sooner we can get that going, the more, uh, the sooner we get the fulfillment and the joy. Do you think that's fair? I do think that's fair. And I, I would say that when, when I made reference to, you know, asking God, what is it that, I'm, you're, that you want me to do, that you're telling me to do, you know, humility it has to be found first. And I, so it, as part of that prayer, I'm saying, God, you know, suppress this ego, right. make me humble. Uh, and the dark times in my life have given me the perspective that it's that I am more able to be humble because I've been humbled and I don't live in a humble state right now, but I want God to humble me, not to the point of breaking me. The uh, great, a couple of quick references. One is with Opportunity International, I was over in uh, uh, Rwanda and this entrepreneur had a small business. I'm like, how many days a week do you work? And he said, my family needs to eat every day. <laughs> I work every day. Right. Think about that. And, and, and another thing that you just feel over and there, the great expression that just is so obvious, which is you never know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And that's why the spirituality in place in very poor places of the world, 
is so profound because there is not, there's hope, there's faith. And, uh, you know, it's, it's tough to be beaten to a pulp so that Jesus is all you have. And I wouldn't pray for anybody to be in that position. But in, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you strong. You feel like you're vulnerable to, you know, to having the world come crashing down. And it's like, wow, there it is. Maybe Jesus is what I need. And so when I said I'm grateful for those experiences, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Love it. Well, Dave, this has been a lot of fun. You know, the way we g- generally wrap these up is by asking a just a practical question. You know, the, the way, as we've talked about it before, that we picture this is like you and I are having lunch and I'm just asking you questions about your story. And uh, it is just sort of a way to record that and share it with our friends in and what I always think is this is just kind of business owner to business owner stuff. You know, uh, we don't work for some media company or anything else. This is just kind of a passion yeah. project. And so I'm just having this picture in my head that I've kind of mentioned before of, you know, somebody five or 10 years behind you, maybe kind of coming out of a, uh, you know, maybe they're having some success now and they're sort of feeling that tug. Maybe they don't quite, maybe they haven't found their sort of calling or their, their place to give back or however you want to frame it. What's just a practical tip that something they could do when they wake up tomorrow or right now as the podcast ends, they could just uh, think about, uh, well, it's just a little practical tip you might leave with them. Well, you, you, you teed me up for this and I'm going to give you a quick, very quick story because I don't want this to long, go on yeah. too long, but when, when my daughter UVA and she, she had a ton of friends there, we went out to dinner in, in an April before their May graduation. And uh, these are really sharp girls, and I knew they were going to ask me to come up with something because I'm always, you know, preaching to the kids. And and I said, uh, you know, I've figured out the secret to life. It's one thing, like that movie, City Slickers, Super Lights. Yeah. <laughs> right. Go, and they go, yeah. What is it? I said it's three simple words: live beyond yourself. Mm. And and I bought each of those girls a little pebble. Uh, two inches by three inches and engraved on it. Live beyond yourself. Put it a little box. My wife at mall gave them to the girls for graduation. And I've since ordered dozens and dozens and dozens of these, but they still say, oh, Mr. Baldy, I still have that little stone on my desk. And I said, you know, if you're going along in life and it's all about you, you're off track. Right. Not that you need to be all about others. Like I was saying with that upward to the right curve, it's not going to be all about others. But if you've had success, pray for humility and then find out where that's leading you to live beyond yourself and just dive in. You don't have to change the world with the first step. Just do something for somebody else and uh, that'll be the first step. Well, what a perfect way to wrap it up. Dave, thanks so much for being with us and sharing your story today. No, it's an honor to be here. Thank you, Jeff, for all you do. And well, thanks everybody for listening to this week's Generous Business Owner Podcast. If you like what you heard, please leave a review or share it with your friends and we'll see you next week. Thanks everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Generous Business Owner Podcast with Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Make sure to follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode. You can find the guest contact information in the show notes. Stay tuned for the next episode.